Welcome to the Deconstructing Data Podcast. I'm Jesse Lezak, Fractional CMO at BDEX, along with David Finkelstein, founder and CEO of BDEX. How's it going, David? It's going well. Busy week again, and uh, we've got some new partnerships to announce soon, so it's exciting. And uh, we got a great guest tonight, today, too, so I'm excited about that. Very cool. Yeah. And I had no idea that you guys had previously met before we set this up. So even better. <laughs> and so um, we're really privileged to introduce Harry Moggins. Harry's the CEO of Privacy B, a company that believes privacy is a human right. You got to love that, right? Mm -hmm. um, Harry has a robust background in data, marketing, and analysis, previously serving as the CEO of Clickagy and the vice president of product at Zoom Info. These experiences and the current market led him to start Privacy B, which he's here to tell us all about. So let's bring him in. Welcome, Harry. Hi. Hey, How's Harry. Hey, good to be here. Yeah, awesome that you could come and join us. Um, like Jesse said, uh, our companies have done some business together in the past when you were with uh, Clickagy. And, uh, and Jesse never even knew that when she set up this uh, podcast. So pretty neat. Hey. You know, it, it's a small world in the data space and, you know, marketing and ad tech, there's so much, you know, technology and innovation going on. Um, you know, BDX and Clickagy were likely to cross paths at some point. For sure. Um, so, hey, listen, let's kick this thing off. Um, I know I know a bit about your background, but for our listeners and viewers, why don't you share a bit about your background? Um, tell us your story and, uh, you know, a little bit about the story of Clickagy and, and, and how that happened and, and how you uh, came about with uh, Privacy B. Let's, let's, you know, start that off. Sure. So I, um, about a decade ago, got into advertising and, and marketing to help uh, mostly enterprise companies target ads more effectively. You realize um, you're trying to sell, you know, um, paint for a house. You know, you can target demographics, but how do you target interest? How do you know who's remodeling their house or who's painting their deck? You know, it's, it's hard to know that without behavioral data. So we started building a platform to analyze massive amounts of, of online behaviors and distill it down to a useful format that marketers and advertisers could use to effectively target ads to people who are interested. And that company grew for a while um, until I think it was Samsung that ended up being kind of a pivoting turning point for us, making us realize that the data behind it was almost more impactful than the advertising, the marketing, the ads, the intent data was really the, the gold. And um, over the years, um, you know, we started working with various companies until eventually ZoomInfo came along, uh, tried out the data, found a lot of a lot of success with it, and and proceeded to ultimately buy Clickagy uh, in 2020 as a as a very large exit in the data space. So doing that over the years, though, I got exposure to, you know, major, you know, CMOs, um, you know, marketing departments of major organizations, agencies. And there's a lot of ethical data in this world. There's also a lot of unethical data. And, you know, after losing deals to the less ethical companies mm -hmm. in this space, you know, you realize over in Europe, they have GDPR. There's some legislation trying to contain the morality of data. And the U.S. is a little lagging in that regard. You know, we have CCPA in California or CPRA, and uh, I think it's 36 states have some kind of privacy law enacted in, in or about to be enacted. Um, it's, but it's very fragmented. It's very confusing. So I started Privacy Bee to help consumers and, and businesses with their employees really take back control over the sources that they're okay being monitored and, 
and using their data for you know positive marketing and advertising interactions versus the ones who are scraping the you know grayer or more murky underbellies of the internet and collecting data that you know they wouldn't necessarily consent to and you know we've we've been around about 2 years now and, and seen absolutely explosive growth in those couple of years which is exciting yeah that that is exciting and uh, you're right i mean i i've kind of correlated the data industry to a bit of the wild west especially in the early days i mean there was there was all kinds of crazy things going on um and and you know a lot of people got in a lot of trouble because of it and there was a lot of people that slipped through the cracks so uh i think that what you're you know what you're doing is important it's uh, it's important to make sure that people feel safe and secure with their their data and how it's being used uh, absolutely and it's um the problem is marketing departments you know <laughs> um the people who are making the decisions for what data sources to use and not use they're under a lot of pressure and especially in the economy we're in these days they're always trying to perform better than the previous quarter outperform kpis for over the last year right return ads but has to increase you know um time period over time period and, and the problem with that is after you start you know after you see these these more shady data sources it's like a siren's call to a lot of marketers and they give in to the temptation and that temptation ends up you know, cutting corners and until we have legislation, and as long as it is the wild, wild west, there's no governing body that's requiring more moral decisions. So, you know, the privacy industry is just going to be <clears throat> become a linchpin in, you know, modern in data and behavioral transactions. It, it just, it has to be. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, so let's, this really ties into sort of the first topic. So I, I want to jump into it because, you know, you, you, in discussing this topic, you talked about how this data can potentially lead to hacks and cybersecurity threats. So let's talk about that. Absolutely. That, that's probably one of the biggest parts of privacy these days, especially in the B2B space, is cybersecurity is not enough, right? You look at companies that had data breaches last year, 100% of them, all the big companies, had cybersecurity. So cybersecurity is out there. It's ubiquitous. Every company has some degree of cybersecurity. Bigger companies that are front page of the newspaper when they have a breach, they have you know massive investments. So how do they keep getting breached? And the number one way that happens is through PII infused spear phishing. That's how you know you look at the last you know, 10, 20 breaches. Probably 80, 90 percent of them come in through some kind of human element where an executive, a VP, even a C-suite is tricked because there is a text message or an email that's so surgical, that's so personalized, that's speaking to them about their family, their kids, where they live, their, you know, the places they visit, things that are not generic, like your Amazon deliveries late. Now they're talking to the human, to the individual. And when it's so personalized, all your training, all your spear phishing, phishing, cybersecurity, awareness training, that goes out the window, especially if it's something like a child that's sick or the example we use is, you know, hey, dear John, your daughter Sally was in a car accident off Waters Road, which he would know is like a street near his house, but not where he actually lives because the information is easy to research. And, you know, it, it, the doctor's trying to contact you, click this link. So those are the kind of messages that actually breach companies these days, because mm -hmm. here's the thing. Cybersecurity is very, very good. You look at all the big companies that are exploding, like CrowdStrike and Palo Alto. These guys are so good at stopping intrusion attempts in the firewalls, the networks, the endpoint security. That hackers know that. Like they're, they're, the hackers are inherently lazy. 
they're going to look at that device and say it has, you know, a top of the line cybersecurity. I, you can't do the 1990s era buffer overflow, basic SQL injections anymore. Everybody, for the most part, is pretty secured. Mm -hmm. So why would they try to go in the front door and try to get through that top of the line security when there's a side window that's open to the business where you can just trick the human and walk right in and they'll give you the two-factor code? And, and that's really where embracing external data privacy helps keep businesses more secure by essentially cleaning up all the exposures of information on the employees and all their personal lives that are just scattered on the internet and on Google, easy to find. By, by, bring, by taking back control over that and cleaning it up, it decreases their attack surface and makes them harder to trick, candidly. Yeah, 100%. I get those emails all the time, actually. I mean, I get, I get them get, from you too. Yeah, well, that's the thing. That's the thing. They, they do that. They, they send emails from me as the CEO to the employees can you do me a favor or yes. whatever? And, you know, it, it's crazy. You know, the, the amount of work that we've had to do to go into making sure that these external emails don't look like internal emails and we can, we can catch them so that our, our team isn't fooled by them. And, you know, you know, these things slip through the cracks, the bigger the company, the, the more likely they're going to slip through the cracks. For sure. And as long as, um, you know, as long as hackers are, you know, Hackers are always trying to get into a company. They're always trying to get access to the crown jewels of a business, right? They're, they're sensitive internal information. And when you have these really strong walls, they're always going to be looking for alternatives. And today, you know, 2023, the human firewall the, the term, humans are the weakest link. Yeah. So the more ways companies can protect in, in intruders from getting in outside of physical devices or, or digital entry points. I mean, um, you can do spear phishing training. You can do... You know, awareness, cybersecurity awareness training. You can try your best to educate a, a person, but at the end of the day, it's it's not just um, it, it's not something that you can train when you have a human instinct and things are you know talking about family, especially. That's one of the biggest breaches that happens. Um, you you look at um, you look at the uh, you know employees coming into a business now and leaving, but onboarding, offboarding. You have new people constantly joining our organization, and those emails you were talking about, like the CEO emailing the fake emails. Those are most common after a new employee joins a company. You know, the hackers, the bad guys, they're watching LinkedIn. They're watching for employee changes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, those people haven't been through the full gauntlet of training yet. Or maybe they're, um, you know, a junior person is entering the career, you know, for the first time. They haven't had a decade of training like a C-suite executive might have had. And even if it's a, you know, manager or director or somebody, you know, lower than VP and C-suite, it doesn't matter where in the organization they are. They still have access to business email accounts, the business file system, OneDrive, Google Drive, internal, whatever it is. They still have access to sensitive data that would, under privacy legislation, you know, constitute a data breach. They have to go through disclosures. They have to enact incident response teams, data breach plans. All this has to happen. It's all very expensive, even if an intern gets breached in most companies. Um, so, you know, you have a, a trend in the market these days to protect the data of and the PII of the executives or executive protection, which is great. But if you're trying to avoid a very costly data breach, you really need to look at a, a, the broader, you know, the broader organization of, of all different levels of seniority. Yeah. Jesse, you're on mute. Ah, sorry. It's a great point. You were talking about personal data. Um, a little bit earlier. And so I wanted to see if we could transition a little bit more on that topic into the second topic, 
which is how are companies and consumers, how can they prioritize safety when it comes to personal data? Know what's out there on yourself, right? Uh, it, you know, you've heard the question, have you ever Googled yourself, right? Almost everybody's Googled themselves at some point. And oftentimes when you do that, you find these people search sites that are exposing your home address, that are exposing your cell phone number, previous cars you've had. A big attack vector for this is identity theft, which is something that a lot of people don't think about. You buy LifeLock or some identity theft protection um, to protect your credit. That is a defensive reactive kind of service. Usually they collect a monthly fee. And then if you have your credit or your identity stolen, they'll make some phone calls. They'll help you defend and recover and remediate, but they don't do a whole lot up until the point outside of just watching. When you take control of external data privacy, especially on the consumer side, when you're Googling yourself and you're finding what's out there on you and then taking steps to clean that up, what that's doing is that's making it harder for a, a identity theft identity thief to steal your identity. Because usually what happens is you have a data breach, you have a company like a, you know, some retailer that loses credit card data or an employer that loses social security numbers, something happens. A bad guy goes out, opens a credit card or a line of credit, fills out the credit application and then drains the account and disappears. That's usually how identity theft works. The problem is, you know, I don't know if you guys have tried to open a line of credit recently or build out a credit application. There's a lot of information they need. And that's not usually easy to find on an average consumer or individual. So what happens is the identity thief, thief, the bad guy, he'll take the um, information that's breached to start it and then go on Google and find everything else on the person, which is usually pretty easy to obtain, to fill in the gaps where they've lived previously, what color their cars were, all those questions you need they can usually find online. So, I mean, taking control of your, you know, your identity, your digital footprint is great, but that's really step two. Step one is figuring out what your digital footprint is and looking at yourself like a bad guy would look at you. What would, what would you research on yourself if you were trying to uh, compromise an individual or compromise, be compromised? So just simply awareness is step one. Mm. Yeah, for sure. And, I, and I, I, I feel like AI is actually just making it easier for the thieves as well, right? I mean, they, they can just <laughs> automate everything. They can, you know, find out anything. It's especially when you think about, you know, Google has a lot of data, but, you know, you can use AI to sort of do exactly what you just said, right? To just find all the data and, and fill in all the gaps of what you're looking for, right? Oh my gosh. You are so right. That is terrifying. And you yeah. could not bring up a bigger point. I mean, what you, you know, this, the same strategy that has been proven to be effective, you research a person, you triangulate addresses and family and interests and hobbies and everything about that person. That's a lot of time. It's manual research that a, a bad actor has to do to be able to craft an attack, to scam, extort, hack, steal identity, trick them into giving a two-factor code, whatever it is. There's a research component that happens before the actual attack, but it's, it's a it's the buildup ahead of the actual attempt at breaching somebody. Well, that that time, you know, it is it could be hours, it could be days, weeks, you know, it depends on the person. But with AI now, that's going to cause an explosion in this because what AI can do, it can take the manual process, the you know intuition that a person has of weaving together these attacks and scale it out, you know, millions of times in parallel. 
So you take in a, a company where previously a hacker would target one or two executives and you know that would be their month. Now they can target every employee in an entire organization with the push of a button with the same level of efficacy that previously has worked on similar companies to breach them in the last you know, couple of years. So it's a terrifying era we're going into from a cybersecurity perspective, um, taking what works manual and automating it at broad scale. Yeah, it's, to me, it's highly comparable to, you know, password hacking, what password hacking used to be, right? Because it used to be like, okay, well, you know, here's what it takes, you know, everybody's seen sort of those scales of here's how long it takes to hack your password if you use this many different letters and numbers and characters and so on and so on. And that chart, uh, I actually saw one recently that showed that chart and what it exactly would look like, you know, 10 years ago. And then it scaled it and showed it what it looks like today. And basically the chart gets, you know, it gets, the time gets shorter and shorter, right? Over time, mm -hmm. because processing power has gotten greater and greater. So it's gotten a lot easier in the last 10 years to hack your passwords, um, you know, in a much smaller time frame. Um, and now passwords are saying, you know, this should be 12, 13 characters, at least mixed letters and numbers and characters, you know, in order to get get at least get that into sort of the years instead of minutes or days. Um, and so I think that what you're talking about is very similar to that in the sense with AI, like if we, in, you know, and, and sort of um, identity theft, because identity theft used to be, like you said, a very manual process and you could do, you know, maybe one or two of these a, a month. Now you can do, like you said, a whole company in, in a matter of minutes and it's, it's just extreme. Um, and people need to be aware of those risks and they need to be aware of, of how easily this can be done today um, versus, you know, just a few years ago. Uh, absolutely. And, and you talk about passwords. Think about it. You know, computing power has exploded since the cloud. Now we have serverless to scale out, you know, massively. Um, but look at passwords, right? You go back 10 years to your point, David, passwords were pretty similar linked to now that, you know, you have some requirements to bump it up a little bit. But I bet you a lot of people listening to this uh, podcast, they probably have the same password they've had for 10 years. Maybe they add a, a character or two on the end, you know, but otherwise, you know, passwords haven't grown nearly as fast as the processing power to break them. Yeah. So at PrivacyB, we actually did the opposite. We got rid of passwords. We're 100% passwordless because we realized that, you know, with the, the industry, especially with, you know, data breaches in the dark web, trying to constantly play the cat and mouse game, it's not even breaching passwords anymore. There's so much availability to data out there that you know you if you ever have reused a password it's going to be exposed pretty much at this point so um and i think uh, even troy hunt has that have i been pwned website mm -hmm. if you're not familiar, they even have a passwords version where you can test passwords and see it's secure and see if any any breach has exposed that password previously which is kind of a, a fun tool yeah. um but now i, I think you know two-factor multi-factor um more especially in the financial market, you're seeing more app-based bridges to a desktop. Like I know a lot of brokerages now, you log into the website on your computer and your phone pops up with a, you know, you know, a face, you know, like a, um, the facial recognition or fingerprint or whatnot, the biometric scan. Yeah. And that then translates back to the website to log you in on the computer. So I, I love that multi-device authentication nowadays. Mm. Yeah. It just gets frustrating when they text you the, the number and you get to go to, back to your device and get the number and punch, <laughs> punch it in. But I like the I like what you're talking about. I, I do like the the ones that are more automated through the app, and mm -hmm. and so you don't have to type a 
back and forth that, you know, the, the app authenticates you. So yeah, for sure. For sure. So I feel a little scared now. Like, you know, there's all these, <laughs> these bad people out there. They're going to steal my data. They're going to steal my identity. Like, what can we do? Um, you know, how much control do consumers and companies really have over their data? Well, and the data their employees share. That's a really good question, too. So option one, you can sell everything you own, move to the ca a cabin in the mountains and live under a rock off the grid. Right? <laughs> it's not realistic. So what happens is um, the Internet today is needed, right? You need to have memberships to you know, Costco and Kroger Plus. It's you need a Facebook account. I mean, you know, obviously there's exceptions to everything. But do you, though? Do you need Facebook? Well, yeah, I, I, no, <laughs> you don't need Facebook. <laughs> yeah, there's just enough grandparents out there wanting to see photos of grandkids <laughs> that, unfortunately, you know, hey, it's, it's hard to escape living in today's day and age without technology you just you just can't right it's i mean there's there's sane um balances to what you expose what you don't i think the biggest thing is what you share yourself on social media versus having an account and locking it down and there's algorithms for sure however um the, the control element is you usually when you have something this broad this amount of risk uh the government is, is stepping in. And you've seen that again with privacy legislation. The problem is the people who are regulating and actually making the laws don't usually understand the nuances that, you know, like a, a, a BDEX or a privacy B or these companies who are really in the data world or the privacy world or in this space see. So usually as soon as a law passes, there's going to be the shadier companies that are going to circumvent it or try to work around it. So really, the, it's up to the individuals. It's up to the consumers. And the way to um, you know, take control, there's no such thing as perfect privacy. But you know, Privacy B and, and you know, our organization, what we're trying to do is we're trying to fight back. There's no perfect solution. But we, we say our, our mandate, our mission statement is we fight against the exploitation of privacy. That's not just people search sites and Google results. This means that our company is fighting against any source online, offline, Anywhere that a person, an employee, a business, their privacy is being violated. So we have three lobbyists on retainer right now, actively trying to enact change. We have, um, you know, some some features that no other privacy company has, like the monitoring Google search results. Small feature, but it has huge impact for our customers. So at the end of the day, it comes down to making a choice to lock down the services you have to use in order to live and um, being mindful of what you put out there and then being mindful and aware of what others put out there on you and taking back control of that, you know, external public data. And, and that's, again, what we live and breathe. <laughs> so that's awesome. I mean, tell, tell us a little bit more. What, how does Privacy B protect uh, companies and their employees? Are you guys like... Um, you know, building in the capabilities to search for that data for a company's employees to help, therefore, protect the company. Is that is that what we're what we're talking about? For sure, yeah. So the 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 business employee side of our business is by far the biggest. You know, we've we've grown um, very very quickly in the space. We have we're the first privacy company in the world to ever secure a U.S. government prime contract. So we're protecting a lot of um, the three letter acronyms in the federal government. Um, you know, politicians, national, local, we have the Hollywood celebrities, every, you know, the, the, the people you'd expect, 
but then also Fortune 500 type companies, mid-market companies where you have thousands of employees. Their CISO, their CIO is saying, hey, they bought cybersecurity. They have training. They have spear phishing simulations. They've done everything. They've checked all the boxes that a cyber professional normally checks, but they still lay in bed at night, staring at the ceiling at 3 a.m., worrying, is tomorrow going to be the day I get that breach notification email? Right? Like, you, there's no perfect privacy. There's no perfect security. So privacy space in the, um, in the business world is everything that is being done today is really the castle walls, right? The firewall around the building, the endpoint protection, you know, kind of covering the devices, you train the people, but it's all within the building and the company's physical barrier. We're everything outside of the company. So we're scanning the rest of the internet. We're scanning dark web, surface web, people search sites, data brokers. We're scanning any, uh, any company that hoards data at scale recklessly. Um, we work with those companies and ensure the privacy preferences of our, our customers and employees of those businesses are enacted. So you take a business that has that cyber risk, that CISO that is unable to sleep, and you deploy privacy B to protect the external data privacy of you know, those thousands of employees, and you're further cutting in to that risk delta that remains. You're just adding an additional layer of protection and mitigating risk above and beyond what all the box checks and cybersecurity is doing today. So again, um, there's no perfect protection, but when you do everything you can, and there's that gap of risk remaining, privacy is a way to further cut into that gap and, and decrease the risk a, a few ratchets more. I like it. I mean, look, if you can make it more difficult on, uh, on those thieves, right, then it just makes them go elsewhere. And so I, I think that, uh, you know, that level of protection is, is, you know, is, you know, worthwhile for, for any company, for sure. For sure. And I mean, there's no, again, there's no perfect security, but to your point, low hanging fruit, right? If you take, you know, two companies, one of them has strong external data privacy, their people are really clean. The bad guy looks at them and says, this is going to take a lot of work. Or the AI, to your point earlier, doesn't yeah. drive much results, right? Whereas company B has poor external data privacy. All their employees are exposed. Everything's out there public. A picture of their CEO's house is right there in Google. You know, the hacker is going to look at that company B like a juicy steak. <laughs> and, mm. you, know, yeah. you know, if you can, um, you know, again, everybody is, is penetrable. I really believe that. However, making yourself not the juicy steak and not the low hanging fruit is, is definitely, you know, a step in the right direction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like that's amazing. So can you tell us a little bit more because this is all the stuff that privacy be helps solve, right? So are you, what, how exactly are you guys helping, you know, these companies, you know, I guess help their employees make sure that they're hiding their data. So when an employer, comes to privacy B and says, help. We scan every one of their employees. We look for where they're exposed. We scan Google, people search sites, any over 440 sites um, that we're actively monitoring and tracking. There's 167,000 sites as of today in our database where we have had human eyes actually go out, read their privacy policy, map out their data deletion process, their DPO, how they receive DSARs and comply with different legislation. We uh, have... Uh, years of history of how the company reacts to territorial DSARs. If it's if they delete any request that comes in, if they have if they push back and say 
you know, we need, you know, um, impractical verification. We have a database of 167,000 companies and how they work with data. From that, we then say, okay, this employee, you know, of the company is exposed in these places. Let's work within that, whatever the proprietary processes of those exposed sources to actually get their information removed. And it starts off with automation. Automation fails a lot, just the nature of the internet. Then we escalate it to a human element um, and that eventually escalates to our Atlanta office and, and then it continues to, to percolate up. And, um, and we're very, very good at getting it removed. But ultimately the goal is after we map out, these are all the places an employee's information is exposed online, we then attack it and clean it all up. And that's the employees. And then a big emerging part of our business is vendor risk management. VRM. That's the third-party supply chain hardening, where we do that same concept, and plus some other variables like the privacy policy and all the historical data I talked about across your vendors. So you have a business that has 5,000 vendors or 1,000 vendors. We score every single one of those companies with a called a PRS, privacy risk score, one to 100% of how risky that company is based on their employees, recent data breaches, um, any kind of external data privacy vulnerabilities we see or weakness, basically how juicy is that vendor stake in the eyes of a hacker, right? Mm -hmm. And when you have a, a business looking at those vendors, they're doing the normal box checks in procurement. They're checking for SOC 2. They're checking for, you know, attestations that they promise they're going to do the right thing with data, all, all the normal stuff. But vendors uh, constitute 72% of data breaches. Usually it's not the company themselves that gets targeted. It's a vendor that gets targeted, they get breached, and then the bad guy swims upstream to the bigger fish. So by protecting the vendor ecosystem, it protects the organization themselves. And there's no other company in the world monitoring vendor risk like Privacy Bee. Um, and even goes further than that. We have a full-time person where their entire job is monitoring for data breaches. That's all they do. So when a breach happens at a company, we immediately have this ecosystem of which businesses use which vendors, and we can notify those businesses and say, hey, of your 1,000 vendors, vendor number 462 just had a data cyber incident, and they had to legally disclose that you know, under their state's regulation. They're trying to sweep it under the rug. It's very quiet. They don't want you to know. But that vendor just became a big risk to you, and you should have your InfoSec team keep a close eye on things because there is a risk in your, you know, your, your, your Apple cart, right? So um, my vendor is not going to go to their clients and let them know, hey, by the way, we screwed up. You know, we just put you at risk. They're not going to do that. They're going to try to keep it quiet because that's their revenue. So monitoring external data privacy, monitoring cyber incidents, breach notifications, we're able to bring more transparency and illuminate that industry where, you know, everybody's held accountable. And some companies will actually say, hey, this vendor is too high of a risk. They're not fixing it. They don't care about this. They're ignoring our pushes. So we're going to go with the competitor. We're not going to renew the contract. We have companies who are using Privacy Bee as a litmus test for only working with companies that have a high threshold of you know, privacy standards to make sure they themselves keep their organization as secure as they can. And that's a, that's a pretty new trend in the, the business industry, really in the last few years. That's incredible. Yeah. I had no idea that that... <laughs> There were companies like that who would go out there and help with all the employees' external data. We it's are the amazing. only company in the world who does this. 
Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> There's other companies in the privacy space. We're the only one who's gotten into the B2B space, the vendor ecosystem. We have EDPA, external data privacy audits. We've put millions and millions of dollars just into the business threat intelligence side of our company, which is uh, an area that there is nobody innovating in. So we're very, very proud of what we built. <laughs> yeah, it's exciting. You guys are definitely creating a new space mm -hmm. uh, and, and for sure one that's, that's needed. So that's exciting. Now, the, the downside of a blue ocean type industry is use, there's an education element, which is why I appreciate you guys inviting me on the show today to share a little bit about yeah. that. No, that's great. That's, you're absolutely right. And people need to know that it's out there and people need to know the importance of it um, and truly understand the risk associated with not having it. So um, we're really happy that you joined us here as well. Um, this is, you know, for sure something that, that needs to be a story that needs to be told for sure. Absolutely. I could not agree more. And as you were talking, I couldn't help but think, you know, I wonder if some of his clients, like, you know, when they're looking at different vendors, who should we go with? Like, they, they, they can't decide. Maybe, maybe that deciding factor is who has more data security. Mm -hmm. Do you ever find that they come to you and ask you questions like that? Oh, yeah. No, we have, it, it goes both directions. We even have employees who go through, it's called Privacy B University. We have um, hundreds of videos. We hired a studio in LA to film that go through privacy awareness, complementary to cybersecurity awareness, but nobody trains employees on the risks of their information being in Google and building an attack vector for spear phishing. So that doesn't exist. There's no training for that. So we hired a studio, we filmed hundreds of these professional videos and we give them away for free. There's zero cost for every single business. And the reason for that is it's, again, an emerging threat. It's brand new. A lot of the legacy education platforms don't cover the risk of data exploitation like this that is breaching companies every single day. So, so we took it upon ourselves to do that. And then with that, once you finish it, you get a certification that you completed the Privacy B University course. And you know, Jesse, to your point, we'll actually, uh, about you know how it's leveraged outside, we have candidates who go and apply for jobs, especially InfoSec type jobs, bundling their Privacy B University you know, course completion certificate with their resume when applying, showing, hey, I take this seriously and I've taken the steps to educate myself and protect myself. And we're, we're very proud of that too. That's, that's really awesome. This is a really great topic. I feel like we could talk on and on about this because I actually just had a text from somebody today being like, hey, are you texting me? And I'm like, no, it's not me. Don't respond. So it just feels very relevant. And I'm sure many people listening have had that too. And you know, a lot of time we don't really know what to do. It's kind of still a newer thing to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, they're not they're not used to seeing a text from their boss and you know, thinking it might not be them. So um, yeah. yeah, it's a scary world. And to your point, you know, we're kind of in an echo chamber here with very technical and, you know, geeky kind of personalities. Yes. You yes. take, you know, John in accounting of a, a construction company where he doesn't have technology training at all. And they're they're way more likely to fall for something because they don't have the exposure and training and awareness that you know we have. Yeah. Which terrifying. is dangerous. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Yeah. And I think it's really great that you've created this company. Yeah, I'm excited to see where it goes. I, I love the whole, you know, creating a new space. You know, I, I've, I've been there and done that, actually. You know, my, my background, um, when I, my first company, I started an internet service provider back in 1994. Pretty much, you know, nobody really knew what the internet was back then. It was all AOL. And uh, so, yeah, similar to you, like, you know, we spent a lot of time educating. Um, and, and specifically, we were educating businesses on, on how they can 
leveraged the internet back in 1994. You know, so uh, you know you're in a similar space where you need to educate people, and we get that. And uh, uh, we hope that you know being on here today helps uh, bring some of that education to to some of our listeners. 100%. And David, I appreciate that. Absolutely. And cool. since you're so inspirational, Harry, we've got to get to these post-topic questions because I'm curious to hear if you <laughs> yeah. could go back to when you first came into the data industry, we'll say, what is the number one piece of advice you'd give yourself? There's a couple ways to answer that, right? <laughs> um, we, you know, when you're in the data space, it's not tangible. You can't touch it. You can't feel it. And to an extent, we deal with that in the privacy uh, industry as well. It's, it's almost like insurance, right? A company doesn't get hacked. Are you doing your job right? Or are you not doing anything at all? Right? So that's kind of the, the ongoing challenge in an industry like this. So I think um, to me, one of the things that took me a little while to learn was how do you take the invisible and make it tangible? And um, the, the obvious result is the analytics, the ways of, um, of forecasting um, different you know, cost-benefit analysis and charts. And I used to think back a long time ago, you could give an executive the best product in the world on a cocktail napkin. And if it performed targeting ads, if it performed for whatever the purpose was, they'd keep buying it. And I learned very quickly that the world is a very visual place. So I would, so in answer to the question, I probably would invest it in business intelligence and ways of really understanding and seeing what's being done sooner and actually doing it. There are so many ideas that are born and die on a whiteboard. And, you know, we've gotten better about capturing them and periodically going back and reviewing that backlog and, and prioritizing which ones, uh, you know, we have a, you know, um, kind of a, uh, what do you call it? Uh, consumer advisory board will have meetings and periodically uh, tease different ideas and get feedback on them. That level of involvement with customers and clients and every idea, no matter how small, not being lost, you know, that, that would have probably moved us a lot faster if we started leaning on that sooner. Pretty good piece yep. of advice. Yeah, that's a great piece of advice. And, and uh, one that, one that's dear to my heart as well, because, you know, been in the data business for quite a quite a while. I remember the early days with BDEX and trying to raise capital and you know trying to talk about data and you know it's just and and here you are you know the, the next meeting is somebody brings in a really cool electronic watch and it's like they could play with it or whatever you know and, and everybody was like oh okay that we can invest in you know <laughs> data, what the heck is that but it wasn't until we got a lot more visual about it you know you, to your point you really have to be able to put you know, some analytics behind it and some big numbers and just kind of show trends and show exactly what happens. You know, what is what is the outcome that comes from from the data itself? And, and until you can really visualize that, put it into something that someone can can understand, you know, it, it's you're you're talking about something that's so virtual that it's really difficult to understand. For sure. And, and also, especially in innovative spaces, I think um, embracing individuality is a really important thing that I, I've learned, too. There's so many cookie cutter, clone, suit and tie kind of companies where everybody's trained to think the same way. Nobody challenges you know, opinions. Um, I'm, I'm the kind of person where I'm more likely to hire somebody with blue hair who lives in their parents' basement, who's a savant at advanced math than some PhD, right? Just because you take a whole bunch of people and you throw them in a room together. I don't care what their title is, what their role is, what their education is. If they have a good idea, we're going to hear it out. 
So, you know, we, we have an idea of the, the grand shuffle where uh, we try to take people in, in different company in our company who have different roles and switch their role and have them try somebody else's role. Mm -hmm. And if we have a meeting, we have an open door policy where it doesn't matter what the meeting is. If it's about a, um, you know, it's a client discussing how to improve performance for whatever, it doesn't matter what it is. Somebody is walking by and it sounds interesting. They can stop and sit down, right? That level of, it could be somebody from the support team, the ops team, HR, sales, it doesn't matter. They hear the conversation. They might have perspectives outside of, you know, the, the normal echo chamber that we have in that department and um, embracing that individuality. You know, we, we call our team an eclectic group of misfits because that's really what breeds creative thinking. That's awesome. Yeah, for sure. Good stuff. Well, in closings, we're getting close to the top of the hour here, Harry. Um, would you like to share anything with the listeners about you know, how they can find you um, or anything else about Privacy Bee? Um, well, you can't find me because we're private. So, <laughs> uh, you know, um, so my email is harry at privacybee.com, B-E-E, -E, like the insect, you know. Um, otherwise just privacyb.com. Um, we have the business side is business.privacyb.com. The main website's consumer focused, but some people you know, don't click through. Um, otherwise, yeah, no, we're, we're out there. We're doing podcasts periodically and we're accessible, um, you know, getting more engaged in the community and, and, you know, trying to get our voice voice heard again, as part of the, you know, building something new that nobody knows exists. Raising awareness is a big focus for us. I'm kind of tempted to go Google your name now and just to, you know, see how it's done right. <laughs> well, see this guy, this um, podcast right there will be near the top. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> right under your Wouldn't link. Wouldn't be anything right? personal out there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, Harry, wow. this has been great. We really appreciate you joining us today. Um, excited to see where Privacy B, uh, you know, uh, goes and, and watch it explode because I'm sure it will. Um, and, uh, you know, Let's uh, let's check back it up and in, uh, in a few months, and would love to have you back on the show. Sounds great, David Jesse. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate it. It's been it's been fun. Absolutely. Thank you both so much. And um, audience <laughs> members, anyone listening, we hope you will check out bdex.com. And if you do, and actually, let me go ahead and pull up our QR code here. If you're watching, you can just scan that QR code, and it'll take you to Omni IQ. Otherwise, go to bdex.com and click Try for Free to try out our app. And it's fairly easy. I mean, all you got to do is upload a CSV of your first party data, and then you get free data on your data. And you can see analytics to see, you know, like, who is my audience? You know, us marketers, we love to obsess over our audience. And that's why I love OmniIQ is because I can upload a list into it and I can get a general idea of birth year, gender, and household income complementary. And if there's something specific I want to look for, then you just upgrade. Um, and then in addition to that, once you upload your first party data, OmniIQ learns from your data and it can go find a larger audience to expand your first party data. Um, and additionally, you can upload a negative list so you can really tailor it to understand who your best customers are. So I, I'm not just saying this because I'm the, CEO, the fractional CMO at BDEX, but it really is an interesting app and you should go try it. No credit card required. And we don't do anything with your data. It stays, you know, it's private for you. Um, but David, what would you what would you add to that? No, I think you got it on. You hit the nail on the head. But, uh, you know, I think that uh, one of the most powerful pieces of our technology is the AI that we built in that that analyzes your data, analyzes your, your best customers 
And the key is to find more people just like your best customers. So, you know, I think uh, we're kind of a one of a kind application that enables you to take your first party data and use that to find more uh, of your best customers. And that's sort of the, the key of the, the AI part of what we do. And from multiple sources too, sorry, not to just keep rambling on about it, but it's not just creating a lookalike audience in Facebook with Facebook data. You're creating, yeah. you know, an audience from multiple sources. Um, so I, I could go on and on, but just simply go to bdex.com and try for free and you'll see what we're talking about. But, you know, we'd also love to hear from our listeners in terms of the show. Um, what do you think? Are there any guests you would like to have on? If so, email it to us at info at and share your qualitative data with us so we can make this better for you. And again, thank you so much, Harry, for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. All right. Thank, thank you. you. Bye bye.